Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller. And I recently met my guest in this programme, Chris Wickham, at All Souls College, Oxford, where he's Emeritus Chichley Professor of Medieval History. We met to discuss Chrissy's recent book, which tackles the thousand-year sweep of medieval European history. I have never read an account, a general account of the Middle Ages, that I didn't think was absolutely fundamentally wrong. In the interview, you'll find out why Chris thinks this. What he's produced is, in the words of one reviewer, the Middle Ages that the 21st century needs to know about. We also talked about why following the money is a good tactic for understanding how medieval power works, and how he selected three remarkable individuals as a way of exploring the lot of medieval women. First, though, I asked him to tell me how his interest in the Middle Ages began. I suppose I must have had the interesting castles that every kid has. But it was really when I was at school and I got so bored with doing the 19th century over and over again, because in those days it was in the 19th century and not the 20th. And I wanted something different. And I started to read medieval things when I was about, I don't know, 14, 15, and I, I just took to them. So it started round about then. And which, which particular aspects, you know, beyond the castles, well, when you started to read about it, what was it that really fired your imagination? As a kid, I was very interested in reconstructing genealogies. I had, I had files of them. And, um, well, of course, there were a lot of kings in the Middle Ages. So I, I got to know the Middle Ages in an oddly, well, an oddly external way. And that, what that did was it created a, a framework for me so that, it, so that the, the history of it made sense, which for most people, let's face it, they, they don't know enough about it for the history to make sense. And, and because it did make sense, I got more interested in it. And as your, as your knowledge deepened, as your view of it became more sophisticated, what problems or what questions were you interested in, in pursuing, you know, in graduate work and, and beyond when you were researching it? I remember at the end of my first year, or in the middle of my first year, looking at finals exams to find out what questions I wanted to know the answers to. And then I discovered that the questions were all in the, in the early Middle Ages. So then I did a number of early medieval courses. And I became interested in, oh, I don't know, the history of Italy. I, I knew Italian, which helped. Um, it seemed to me then that no one did the history of Italy and that that was a, that was a problem that was worth focusing in itself. Um, of course, I didn't realise at that point that plenty of Italians studied it. But it was more country by country than problem by problem. I, I got interested in the problems only later. 
And this book, in which you write about the entire history of the continent over the space of a millennium, is that a book that you felt you had an appointment with? Is that something you felt at some stage you, you would write? Or how did, how did that actually come about? In fact, no. I had an appointment with a book about the socioeconomic history of the period between 400 and 800 called Framing the Early Middle Ages, which I published in 2005. And that was the book where I was going to take a set of comparisons, see how things worked across a wide geographical landscape comparatively. And I thought that that was going to be my contribution. As a spin-off of that, I did a general history of the early Middle Ages called The Inheritance of Rome, which had the cultural bit and more religion, although everyone always says that I don't put enough religion into books. And it was on the back of those that Heather McCallum, who's, who's head of, of Yale University Press in, in Britain, came and badgered me to, to, write, to write Medieval Europe. And in, initially, I was rather resistant. I thought, I've done this. But then I thought, well, no, I haven't, because you know, the Middle Ages does go on for a thousand years, and I've only done 500 of them. It would be really interesting to try to see what the great arc would be. So I was persuaded by her and then I became interested and then I figured out what the great art was in my own mind and, and it worked from there. And a great arc which resists earlier great arcs. So the, the, there are certain views of the Middle Ages that you're keen to, to contest and, and challenge and, and overturn. Yes, I think that's absolutely crucial in that really what I thought was I have never read an account, a general account of the Middle Ages that I didn't think was absolutely fundamentally wrong. Because all of these accounts have are fixated on a period where things start to happen and things become more modern and uh, Gregorian reform, papal reform in the 11th century, the 12th century Renaissance rediscovering the past, the, the, the ancient past, the commercial revolution of the 12th and 13th centuries, nation-state building in the 13th century. All of these things should have inverted commas around them. But as a combination of what people used to call the High Middle Ages, again with inverted commas around it. This is the, the medieval peak. And I don't buy any of it. And I wanted in this book to show why, in my view, they didn't work at all. You warn against the, the twin but opposed temptations of viewing the, the people of the Middle Ages as more or less just like us, in, but in costume, or viewing them as entirely alien, as though they, they you know, dwell on a different planet. How do, you, how do you navigate those twin temptations? Well, it's very hard to avoid them. And in fact, one could create an, an imaginary ridge between them that one walked along trying not to fall off on either side. But that's too difficult to do and it creates too many, oh, well, no, you can't say that. There are quite a lot of articles which say the problem with X's work is that he or she thinks the Middle Ages is just like us, or the problem with X's work is that he or she thinks that the Middle Ages is, is not like us. And you look at these and, and it's never satisfactory. So I thought the best thing to do is to, is to actually do them both, to say, well, actually, both of these two things are true. You have to navigate knowing that both are true and to try to make some sense of the Middle Ages without taking away from the fact that it's not our period and that everybody's assumptions change in quite short periods of time. Um, as I say in the book, you may think that, that you have to make an imaginative effort to understand the 980s, and you're right, but you have to make an imaginative effort to understand the 1980s. 
Uh, and I, I, and I, I think that that's important in every period. In fact, I actually think that the problem is the problem for contemporary historians who don't realise it. Now, you mentioned a moment ago the, the points on the conventional arc that you're contesting. Mm-hmm. Accepting that you can go into detail and that readers will have to discover the detail for themselves, just give me a sense of the shape of the arc that you're, that you're erecting. The first half of the Middle Ages consists of political systems that, are, that have the memory of Rome in their minds, that have the memory of a big public operation with something that you can call a state, and they use the word publicus, public, uh, a lot. Some of them are very ambitious. The Carolingian period, for example, late 8th and 9th century, huge area of Western Europe, France, Germany, the, the, the Low Countries, most of Italy, parts of Spain, Austria, all under a single political unit. These people are very ambitious indeed in terms of a, a moralised public power very moralised, in fact. They're ambitious in a way that no later medieval political system is. Then that breaks down in the 11th century, very roughly. And people are less ambitious after that. Political systems are less ambitious after that. Rulers are. And also rulers are operating on a much, much, much smaller scale. And that breakdown, I think, is the, is the hinge of, of the Middle Ages. And after that, people try to reconstruct, but they have to reconstruct on the basis of the small political units that were created in the 11th century. And often enough, they do. Often enough, they do that very well. Late medieval France, very, very strong political system. But but often enough, things remain pretty fragmented after that. You make the point, if we ignore Byzantium, we're missing a large part of the picture, and yet many histories of the Middle Ages do tend to ignore Byzantium. What, what, what are you bringing back in by including it in, in such a full way? Well, simply, I, I'm writing a history of Europe and Byzantium is part of the history of Europe. I don't think there's much problem about that. But I think it's important to also recognise that until the end of the 12th century, after which, in fact, uh, Byzantium is destroyed by Western European armies, it is the most sophisticated political system on, in, in the European continent. It's got a very complicated state structure. It's got a very complicated cultural scene. It's got some some very ambitious policies. It's an important state. And to write histories that ignore the existence of this important state seem to me histories that that aren't histories of Europe. So it's simply necessary to have it. What does it bring? It brings as much and as little as histories of England or Spain or or Germany. It's just part of Europe. Two things that I took away from your book were the importance of understanding who owns land, where it comes from, how it's managed, what financial transactions are involved in it, and also how taxation works. And those both sound potentially comparatively dry topics, and yet you make a convincing case that they do underpin a great deal of what is going on in Europe. I think it's just a question of where the money is. If one says now, follow the money, it's a cliche. It's not in itself dull, although God knows high finance is potentially dull, but following the money isn't dull. You read newspaper articles and that can be really quite interesting. But if you follow the money in the Middle Ages, then you need to know about land and you need to know about tax. This is how people make money. This is how people become rich. 
And this is how people become rich enough to be politically powerful and politically active. And you can't analyse people who are politically powerful and politically active until you know how much money they've got. And I think it's really that people don't do this enough. They do it surprisingly little. So people write histories of, I don't know, Sweden, as if it's the same sort of thing as writing histories of France. And yet the, the, the King of Sweden's got about, I'm totally guessing here, but, but, but possibly a hundredth of the, of the disposable wealth and therefore the resources and therefore the capacity to pay an army, for instance, that the, the King of France does in 1450, say. And it can't help but affect your understanding of what the King of Sweden can do and what the King of Sweden can't do once you realise that. Tell me how you chose the women that you focus on when you, when you look at the, the different roles of the sexes in the Middle Ages. You focus on St. Catherine of Siena and Marjorie Kemp and Christine de Pizan in particular. So how, how did you select those? What were you, what were you seeking to explore there? I was seeking to find people who we knew enough about to enable us to identify their, their, to identify their own voice. One of the troubles about writing about women in the medieval period, and not only the, the medieval period, is the degree to which they're constructed by men. But in the case of all of these people, we've got their own writings, and we've got a sufficient density of their own writing that we can get a sense of what they themselves were like. Now, in the case of Marjorie Kemp, it's actually only one book, but it's really quite a large book. It's an autobio. It's an account of her strengths and weaknesses. She's not afraid to tell you that she that she had a that she had a nervous breakdown. That's not a kind of thing you normally find in the 1430s. But our ability to say, well, it looks like Marjorie Kemp is is constructing herself like this. I won't say was like this. Because every time anybody ever tells you anything about themselves, they're constructing themselves. But Marjorie Kemp is no different from any of us in explaining ourselves in that respect. And the same is true about the other two in that Christine de Pizan wrote a lot. Some of it is very angry. And Catherine of Siena, although she's a saint, she's got a saint's life, it's written by a man, we've got a lot of her letters. She seems to have dictated them herself. She claims at one point, miraculously, to have learnt how to write. Um, maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. But anyway, they don't sound like anybody else's letters. So it was for this reason that, that I thought these are good people to, to bounce off. And they're all atypical, obviously, but they allow you to to see what the, what the bounds of possibility are. For, for women. Is that, is that the case? Yes. All of these three, in some respects, are facing the same kinds of problems. They're totally different people in many respects. Two of them are saints. Uh, well, no, to be exact, one of them technically is a saint. One of them is an ascetic holy woman who is not aiming for sainthood and who certainly never gets it. And one is a, is a working poet. Uh, she writes poetry for money. So they're all very different types of people. They're all from the same kind of period, late 14th, early 15th century. And I think that that's simply a product of the fact that there's so much more writing around in the 14th and 15th centuries that we actually have some chance of identifying people like this. But I don't think that the period in, in other respects is, is significant. I was interested that you 
identify the existence of public en- intellectuals as as far back as St. Bernard and, and Peter Abelard. If someone's coming to to the book with a modern notion of public intellectual, I mean, what, 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 how do you view the public intellectual of the Middle Ages as, as differing? Well, until the very late Middle Ages, obviously, they are writing less. Less is available in writing about them. Uh, there's less of a connection between them writing and other people reading. You have to get into the 15th century before you get people writing tracts that are then instantly circulated very, very widely. Someone like Jean Gerson, who's vice-chancellor of the University of Paris in the early 15th century, is one of the first people who is like that, who, who knows that when he writes something, a lot of people all the way across Europe are going to be reading it quite soon. But I started with Abelard and Bernard in the 12th century simply because in a smaller area, which in that particular case is northern France, a lot of people are very interested in what they are writing and want to know what they are writing next as soon as they can. And I think that that's the first point at which that kind of intellectual operation is personalised in the sense that people do say, I wonder what Bernard thinks about this. It's very easy now to, to romanticise Abelard. He's, he, he seems more like us. He's, uh, he, he's a university teacher. He's very pleased with himself. He has an affair with a student. I don't mean that, that that's the kind of thing that university teachers regularly do. But he writes an autobiography in which it's all about how basically how proud I was, how vainglorious I was. I was brought down because actually after he had an affair with a student, his, his student stepfather had, had him castrated. And which is not a good thing to happen to anybody, let's face it. And so he seems like someone we can identify with, and people have tried to identify him with him re- really, really hard. Bernard, who is actually his enemy, seems a, a, an apparatchik to us. He knows exactly what Christianity ought to be, and if it's not like that, he's going to come down on it. But people are interested in him in the same kind of way. People, people simply want to know what what his next text is going to say, and they're going to talk about it. And I think that makes you a public intellectual, even if the public is geographically still quite restricted. And by the end of your period, am I right in understanding that there is a bit of a shift or a bit of an expansion in what a public intellectual might concern himself with? I think they're generally men, aren't they? That there's more engagement with practical political problems rather than it leaves the realm of theory? Is that, is that, is that too bald a characterisation? Well, it's a bit bald in that, again, someone like Gesson is writing about practical political problems, but he's writing about theory, he's writing about philosophy, he's writing about correct political action, he's writing about anything that comes into his head, in fact. And, but, but people are still interested in it because he's Gerson. But apart from Gerson, I think it's simply, in the late Middle Ages, a question of greater circulation of texts. It is easier to get information out. People are sitting in towns copying stuff like mad. There aren't printing presses yet until, until after 1450 and only slowly after that. But again, by 1500, there are quite a lot. Luther is going to use this in the in the fifteen late fifteen tens and fifteen twenties dramatically because of the printing press, but the printing press is not the only thing that makes 
that kind of engagement possible and that kind of public interest possible because you don't just need the printing press you need the people running from town to town with the text and you had people running from town to town with the text in the 15th century as well and sometimes in the 14th century someone like Petrarch in the 1450s and 60s has has the same kind of interest and people are people are taking his works about and, and talking about them. And again, it's simply a question of the availability of copyists, the availability of movement from place to place. That is developing, starts in the 12th century, and by the end of the 13th, it's pretty dense. You say in the book, the image of the medieval mind bedevils too many books. So if we jettison it, are, what, are we left with medieval minds, a more nuanced picture of the medieval mind? Or is it, is it not, a helpful, not a helpful concept to think with at all? Well, when I said the image of the medieval mind bedevils things, it's because people have this image of, in the Middle Ages, people don't think about this. In the Middle Ages, people don't understand that. And having the idea that there's one medieval mind makes it a lot easier to to diss it. I would say medieval minds. But I would say also minds in the past, in a period that happens to be the period that we call the Middle Ages. I don't think there's something fundamentally different between the kind of way that people think in the 15th century and the kind of way that people think in the 16th. It's just that I had to stop somewhere, and so I chose 1500. I was talking to Chris Wickham about his most recent book, Medieval Europe, which is published by Yale University Press. You can find out more about it on Yale's website. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.